Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another week that we can come together and put ourselves under the means of grace to fellowship around prayer and the Word. And as we open our hearts to your Word, we know that you promise to powerfully work graciously to change us. May we have a love for the truth. May we have an obedience to the truth. And, Lord, we want to be faithful servants. We pray for the scattered flock around the world that listens in on the Internet, and we pray that you'd help them gather together as well and protect them. Father, those who are being bombarded by false teachings that are hungry for the truth, protect their hearts and minds and help them stand firm. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I just heard from somebody just thinking about how sad it is. I heard from a fellow, I think from Australia, who the elders of the church told him that he's got a bad attitude. He should quit asking about what's true and what's false and forbade him to go on any of these so-called really bad websites. And the list was Jan Markell, mine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You can't go there. You can't look. You can't do this. You can't do that. You just sit here and listen to our false teaching and like it. And so he asked me what to do. He says, do I have a bad attitude? And I said, well, the problem is you've got a, a serious problem with the, with the elders because it says in Titus 1 and verse 9 that the, the elders themselves are supposed to refute the false doctrine that's coming into the church you shouldn't have to go to the websites because those elders ought to be doing it themselves. Instead, they're bringing the false doctrine to the church and rebuking godly people for not listening to their false teaching. What a terrible role reversal that is. So pray for the flock. They're, they're battered out there. It's a terrible battle. And can you imagine just going to the pastor and say, Pastor, we want to hear the Bible preached and the gospel preached. And, they, and then the answer is, you got a bad attitude. Why is it a bad attitude to be hungry for the Bible? <laughs> yeah, you're a wicked sinner. You want to hear the Bible. Shame on you. <laughs> okay, well, you're going to hear the Bible here whether you like it or not. <laughs> I know you do. All right, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8. We're just going through the Bible. What it says, it says. It's our job to learn it. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. There's actually some pretty strong words here. When you look it up in the Greek, there's a military analogy going on. The word for robbed, sulao, means to plunder, and it was used for stripping a dead soldier of his armor. And the term for wages could also mean a soldier's rations. So there's a little military metaphor. And Paul... He's really had a battle on his hands with this church. Whatever he did, they found reason to criticize him. They criticized him on, on one regard because he wasn't taking any wages. And so the false teachers came along and said, well, if he had anything worthwhile to preach, he'd be worth paying for it. So you can't listen to him. He's not getting paid. And then if he does get paid, they criticize him because they think he's just in it for the money. And so the fact is there's just a problem in, in a lot of uh, immaturity going on in Corinth. Sustenance. So there was a, a gift sent to him by the Macedonians. And 
Paul's policy, I think I mentioned this last week, but here's, here's what his policy was. I think you can find this throughout the Scriptures. His policy was this. While he was evangelizing a city and founding a church, he did not take money from them. During that process, he did his tent making and what have you because he didn't want to make any kind of thinking that maybe the gospel is there to get money. So the gospel went to the city for free. But after a church was established and discipled and he left to somewhere else, he would accept their money after he left because that was their way of furthering his mission to the next city. And so the best example of that would be the Philippians. They, were, they sent a generous gift after he was off going to actually to prison. But in the Macedonians here, we found, sent money to Paul as he was teaching or going to Corinth. Now, verse 9. And when I was present with you and it was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So the money that he needed came from Macedonia to supply his need. The term burden is kind of an interesting one in the Greek. It comes from a root word, narke, which was a fish that would sting a victim and make it numb. <laughs> okay, a numbing shock or a numbing sting from narke. So the word here, kata narkao, was literally to numb, but here, this is probably a good translation, not to not be a burden. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. I was reading a number of commentaries on this, and it's interesting. One fellow had a totally different take on it than everybody else. And I want to I show you that because it gives a little insight to, to the social workings of the Greco-Roman world of the first century. I'm not sure this is what Paul had in mind, but I still found it interesting enough. I want to share it with you. By the way, this, this guy that I quote some, David Garland, I got an email this week from a lady who attends a church, and her pastor, besides being a pastor, teaches at a seminary, and that seminary is where this David Garland teaches. So she knows this guy. So she was asking me if that's who I was quoting, and she said, yep. I said, yep, that's the one that she knows. Okay, now this is some material about just how people thought in the ancient world. Quoting this David Garland, Accepting gifts in the ancient world placed one under social obligation to show gratitude. It's social quid pro quo dictated relationships. Anyone who received a gift or benefit was obligated to respond in kind. Gifts and favors, therefore, could not be taken for granted, but placed serious obligations upon the recipient that could not be discharged by a brief thank you note. Receiving a gift consequently put one under considerable social and financial pressure. When there was a disparity in the giving, the one who outgave the other gained status as the superior while the other dropped in social standing. And we saw a little bit of that, remember, from Bailey's discussion of the social world of the first century in, in when I was preaching on the guide who gave the big banquet. And, and so you invited people that were on equal plane with you socially 
because that's the only ones that could return a favor. And it was actually considered rude to invite a poor person to a banquet because the poor, poor person would be put into a, an obligation to return and not be able to do so. So it wasn't always necessarily a bad motive that they didn't invite the poor because they, there was just a social situation that made it awkward for everybody in the case. And so that's what made that parable so interesting and magnanimous because it's, it's talking about God bringing people to his banquet knowing that not a one of them could ever repay him. So it has to be absolute free grace. That we're in God's banquet is just God's grace to us fully. Okay, so they had these social obligations. When there was disparity in the giving, the one who outgave gained status. Many benefactors sought to exalt themselves over the recipients and gave to others only to display their nobility and to have it heralded publicly. As someone who was impoverished, Paul could not show gratitude to the Corinthians with counter gifts. Given the elaborate social protocol regarding how gratitude was to be expressed, if Paul accepted the Corinthians' gift, he could only return the favor by heaping honor and praise upon them. In the process, he would clearly become their social inferior, something he was not prepared to do. He cannot be free to preach the gospel with boldness if he's having to run around kissing men's hands, sending them gifts, groveling before them, and slavishly flattering them. That's Garland's take on why Paul didn't take the money. He's the only one that said that, but I just found it interesting, yes. Well, in the same context, that would make the gift that he's bringing to Jerusalem very interesting because it's going to put the Jews then under obligation to the Gentile Christians and acknowledge them as brothers just by accepting the gift. And Luke is really careful, doesn't talk about that because he doesn't want to make more offense, I don't think, to those people. It appears that they didn't want to accept it, that they just snubbed it, snubbed a gift from the silence. That's sort of an argument from silence as far as Acts concerned. But Paul did mention later before one of those rulers that he had come bringing alms to the Jews. So he did bring it, but there's not a single thing mentioned about what kind of reception it got and being how uh, the thousands of Jews zealous for the law evidently turned against Paul. It wasn't a good thing. It didn't do what he was hoping it was going to do. It didn't unify the church because the Jews were so angry at Paul. And what they were angry about was that, uh, remember in the Acts when we looked at that, that some Jews from Asia came and started the, the trouble and they were the ones who were reporting what Paul was doing in Asia. And clearly it is the case that in Asia Minor, the church there, the churches had Jews and Gentiles, and they were in fellowship with one another. Because remember the issue in Galatia when Peter was in fellowship with the Gentiles until the Jews from Jerusalem showed up? And then the, the pressure was so intense from them that he backed away from even eating bread with the Gentiles. Now, as we've been saying, and some of you are reading the Bailey book, one of those Bailey books, the one on Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, it's really a good read. Who you ate with meant everything in that world. If you eat with somebody, that, that shows that you consider them an equal and you consider them important. All right? So Peter eating with the Gentiles was like the breaking bread of Acts 2.42. It means we're one in Christ, and we're equals, and and you're as important as anybody else. 
Well, so here is uh, the pressure coming from Jerusalem. So Peter quits doing it. And that's what caused Paul to publicly rebuke him. So these Jews from Asia would have known that the Gentiles and Jews were together in one church, eating together, taking communion together, breaking bread together. And that was offensive to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so, in some ways, the report about Paul was, had a little bit of truth to it because the church was unified between Jew and Gentiles, one new man, Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, so, with whom you ate and who was your benefactor and so on was a very significant thing and not just a minor one. See, in our world where we have, I mean, everybody has a refrigerator with food in it. Okay? And if you have company, you don't have to kill your steer. <laughs> or butcher a couple chickens. Alright? You just go down to Byerly's or wherever you go. And, and so, it doesn't do the same thing in the sense that we, we always seem to live around an abundance of food. Most people, not maybe not everybody, but most people. So who has a lot of money, who doesn't, really doesn't make any difference as far as who we eat with. It's real easy to get food and to eat. Now, so he didn't want to burden them, and his policy was to no gifts while present, but support can be given after he leaves. Well, if this garland is right, that would make sense too, because once he leaves, there's no more social stigma, because he's not there present with them. And there's no sense that he's obliged to do something in return. He's being gifted to be able to go evangelize the next city. So that's the policy. Now... I have a couple of uh, cross-references, Robert, Acts 20.33, and then Keith, Philippians 4.11-14, Acts 20.33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Okay. Paul was very careful to make sure it was obvious he wasn't motivated by money. Uh, Philippians 4, I think it's about them sending a gift. Philippians 4, um, 11 through 14. I want to speak by 10. But I, great, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received, or you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and great need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in your affliction. Okay. You knew yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Okay. So the Philippians were generous. Uh, to Paul, and he mentioned there, you know, we, we a lot of times have these refrigerator verses, okay? <laughs> we have a little joke about that, uh, Brian Beers. <laughs> we had a, when we were doing the Hebrews back in the old building, there was a passage we got to on Hebrews 10, and I th- wasn't it, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no more re- 
uh, forgiveness of sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of God poured out on his adversary, something like that. Okay, and so we were reading that verse, and I said, boy, you don't see that one tacked to anybody's refrigerator. <laughs> so at, when we got done with Hebrews, Brian comes with a little gift for me, okay, and we opened a box, and here's a refrigerator magnet with that verse on it. <laughs> so... The story, that's not the end of the story. So I thought, cool. So I took it home and stuck it on the refrigerator and didn't tell Diane. <laughs> and she came in in the kitchen and was reading that. And she goes, what's this on our refrigerator? <laughs> what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> I don't know that I had to tell her the story about Brian Beers. Well, anyhow, the refrigerator verse would be, I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me, right? Well, that's fine. I'm not against that on your refrigerator. But remember the verses before it. Okay, that I that I'm able to be live in uh, poverty or prosperity, and that's a, that's an important thing. And I think as we are facing some serious economic problems, uh, you know, I think we need to think about how we help one another and how we may have to face living in going from one type of living to another, and. I can tell you from experience, from the 70s, that the Lord takes care of you. And, and we, we, I just heard a couple more people lost jobs. We need to pray for one another, pray for the people that lost jobs. But I do know the Lord takes care of you. All right? And it's, uh, that verse is very pertinent that we need to be able to do all things through the Lord who strengthens us. Sometimes it's the more difficult things that face us. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. So he had preached the gospel to them free of charge. And whatever these super apostles or pseudo apostles, as another verse says here, um, are saying, and whatever these charges are against Paul, and whatever shame they're trying to bring to him, He's not going to quit boasting. Now, boasting has been a theme throughout the Corinthian correspondence, First and Second Corinthians. And Paul is in favor of boasting as long as it's boasting in the Lord. All right? But if you're boasting in anything besides what the Lord does, it's a very bad thing. And so the boasting that won't be stopped is the fact that Paul will continue to preach the gospel even if the Jews rather see signs and the Greeks will rather listen to Sophia, wisdom, he will preach the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. And he'll do so without charging for the gospel when he's evangelizing a new city so that none of these social issues get going there that might create a problem. And it will not be stopped. And that's the one thing that's absolutely how would you say it? Paul's raison d'etre. You know French, is that right? Say it right. Raison d'etre. Okay. And it means reason for being, right? Wouldn't this mean, if we were to look in the modern day, if you had somebody come with a ministry and ask for money on the front end before they'd actually just given the gospel freely, that this would be a... Uh, that would be a bad thing. In essence, that's what the false apostles, the pseudo-apostles are doing, yeah. are saying, give us money and we'll preach to you, or, or yeah. concurrently, and Paul 
wouldn't take money on the verse that well, we just read in Philippians. He didn't take money until he had left. Until he had left. Yeah. So if if people come asking for money for their ministry, we should be very, very suspicious because they fall into this kind L- of a let's, category. Yeah, let's see. Well, I would say if you have somebody who's been preaching gospel wherever that comes through, like let's say like Mike Gendron, I think, well, we're going to support him because we know he preaches the gospel. Yeah, he has. Well, especially when it comes to going to the lost. Can you, well, let's just try to make an analogy. Let's say we decided we're still down on 24th and Nicollet where we could draw a crowd, you know, which we haven't figured out yet how to do that in St. Louis Park because the suburb people, if they see in the park preaching, they're just going to go in a big circle around. <laughs> what do those people do? Whereas on 24th and Nicollet, you just put out some hot dogs and hamburgers and start preaching and here comes the crowd. But wouldn't it be kind of odd if we set up shop on 24th and Nicollet like we used to do and said, okay, we've got food and we've got hot dogs and we've got music and we've got the gospel, and, uh, but first we're going to pass the collection plate. Wouldn't you, can you see why that would be so bad? Because they're not even Christian. All right? And, and we'd be wanting them to give us money to tell them the gospel before they even heard the gospel. The real thing is you preach the gospel to them. If they're converted and you feed the flock, people will come and ask to give money. Once you're saved, you love to support the gospel. So I think Paul's pattern does follow, and it makes a lot of sense, that after he leaves the city, you have saved people there. They want to support the gospel so Paul can bring to somebody else the message he had brought to them. Oh, let's see if there's anything else here. Stopped would be obstructed, literally obstructed my boasting that he preached the gospel free of charge. Paul's boasting is what God does through him, through the gospel. And so uh, that will not be obstructed in Achaia, which is where Corinth was. Why? Now we find another charge that they're obviously leveling against him. Because I, because I, do, not, because I do not love you, God knows I do. So here, now they're complaining that Paul doesn't love them. See, you have to, because we haven't seen the other correspondence, we have to read between the lines all the way through 2 Corinthians to find out what's going on. But you can see when he's talking about, because I don't love you, obviously some people were saying Paul has no love for you. And, of course, the false apostles claim that they did. Because they're setting themselves up against Paul, making themselves look good at his expense. That God knows the heart. There's an interesting little section. Let's just—I'm going to turn. To, I got—I got a new preaching Bible. Somebody gave me this, and look at this soft leather. It flops like a preaching Bible supposed to. Flop. That's a nice one. But I'm not going to boast in what kind of Bible I have. <laughs> I'm only boasting in the Lord. But I am grateful to have this nice Bible. Let's go to John 21. There's a little interesting thing going on between Peter and Jesus. Let's start with verse 15. John 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Tend my lambs. 
And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Remember Paul said, the Lord knows I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Beautiful little section. But how was Peter supposed to demonstrate that he loved God? Taking care of Jesus' little flock. Okay? So, rather than talking about our spiritual prowess or how we really love the Lord and how we really are purely motivated and, and so on, which, you know, that's something you really don't want to necessarily brag about because how, how many of you know it's possible that your own motives are wrong and you don't even know it? Okay, because the Bible calls God the heart knower. Right? God is the heart knower. God knows the heart. And sometimes the Lord, well, I know a lot of times He does, He brings us through discipline to reveal our own heart to us. Or sometimes He allows us to go through trials to reveal to us things that maybe need to change or need to be better. But when it comes to church leadership, the thing that, that Jesus is pointing to here is how someone takes care of the Lord's flock. And I'm telling you, that is very telling. That's very telling. If you watch, I just think of that email I got from that poor guy who was getting beat up by elders at this church. And Dick, did you see that email? Yeah, I think you did. A guy from Oz. You saw it too. I sent it to the CIC board. And Sam would have seen it. It's like, how can you? All right. What does it say here? I love Jesus. Okay, well, take care of these flock. Okay, say. You know, if you do you love me, fleece my sheep. <laughs> no, yeah, like that tie I had last week. The little wolves. Yeah, you flee. If you fleece the sheep, it's not a sign you love Jesus. You're supposed to feed them, and tend them, and keep the wolves away from them. Well, the Lord help us. The Lord help us. I got a, a letter from John MacArthur. Not personally, it was his. Everybody here probably got it. That, that ever says money to John MacArthur. But did you see his 40th anniversary letter? Here, here let me tell you something impressive. In fact, I got it in my bag there because I wanted to make a PDF of it. There's some interesting things in there. Here's, here's what impressed me. It shows the importance of elders, of quality elders. Because MacArthur said this. In 1969, there's a church, the church that he's pastoring had lost two pastors. They'd had heart attacks. They had a pastor, had a heart attack. Another pastor had a heart attack within just a couple of years. So John MacArthur was still in his 20s, so they decided maybe he wouldn't have a heart attack or they hired him, something like that. <laughs> they wanted somebody to be around a little longer. So he came in and preached some sermons. And this, you can read it in his letter, but here's what the elders said. The elders said, we will hire you with one stipulation. You have to keep preaching the way you did. In which was he was preaching verse by verse, expository. If you promise that you will not stop that sort of preaching, then we'll hire you. 
And so they did, and now he's done 40 years of that. And um, if you, if you, if you, it, it, the bottom line is this, that I'm seeing, is that if you have a congregation with elders that meet the qualifications that are spelled out in Acts 20, Titus 1, and 1 Timothy 3, you take those and look at the basic qualifications, then what will those elders look like? They'll look like whoever those guys were that hired John MacArthur in 1969. They, they, didn't, they weren't looking for, well, they were looking for somebody who wasn't going to have a heart attack. <laughs> but that was beside the point. They were looking for somebody who was going to feed the Lord's sheep. That's the number one thing they wanted. And when they were sure he was going to do that, they said, okay, you have a job. Interesting. Go ahead. Uh, I got an example. A church that I had left like three years ago, they had, uh, well, obviously their elders didn't, couldn't keep out the wolves, but they had these false prophets there last year, two conferences, and they were charging 60 bucks up front even just to get in the doors. 60 bucks for, to hear the false prophet? Yeah. Per person. Okay, 60 bucks. <laughs> One time, this was some years ago, Jan was having a conference. At the same time, there was a conference with false teachers, and the false teachers were charging like 100 bucks a head to go to their thing. And jazz was free. It's amazing. False teachers just don't preach for free. <laughs> if you want heresy, you've got to pay for it. <laughs> right. I think I had that in my notes here. But let's go to the next verse here. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 12. What, what, but what I am doing, I will continue to do. That's, that's the sort of thing that we were just talking about, that Jesus told Peter to feed the flock, and MacArthur was asked by the elders to do so starting in 69, and now he's been doing so for 40 years. Imagine what America would be like if every city and town had a pastor like that. I mean, that's how a revival would be going on. That's how the flock would be sanctified. If you sit under good Bible teaching, you will get sanctified or offended. <laughs> One of those things will happen. So Paul's not going to quit. What I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity. Opportunity there, the word in the Greek means base of operations. It's sort of a military term. Someone's setting up a base of operations in order to launch an attack. Uh, opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the manner about which they are boasting. They are boasting not that they are like Paul, they're boasting that they're superior to him, that, they, that they're more eloquent, that they have better visions, that they can do greater miracles, that they had more power, and that they were the super apostles. These people who call themselves apostles and workers and servants, verse 13, verse 15, as we'll see. So the terms that are applied to Paul, uh, they apply to themselves, but they're false ones. They're false workers. So, uh, I have another quote from Garland. Would they be willing to give up financial support and humble themselves with work? To further the gospel. Paul thinks it's unlikely. I had it in my note 
what we were just talking about on my notes here. Paul apparently is quite sure they will not preach their false gospel for free. He's challenging them. Take away the money, you take away the, the desire for the false teachers to be there. Because the motive is gone. There's no longer any reason to be there. So, heresy is expensive. In more ways than one. <laughs> you probably saw in the paper that there was an apostle over here in near the cities who was running a Ponzi scheme. An apostle. Roger knows him. <laughs> He's argued with him. You, did you give him your money? No. <laughs> Good for you, Roger. A discerning. <laughs> Yeah, he's running a Ponzi scheme for the Lord. <laughs> I say that was uh, irony, okay? Uh, Barnett says this, Apparently Paul was asserting that he will continue to decline payment in order to cut the ground under those intruders who seek to stand as equals with him in ministry. So they had a base of operations set up. Now we go to verse 13. And here we have some very interesting... And Oh yeah, Keith, go ahead. I think what's happening there is Paul's using money as a test, as an obvious test for the people to see who is true and who is false. Because if they demand money, then their message isn't true and they don't really love the truth because they're demanding money. So it's a litmus test of what's actually going on. They can say what they want, but just look at their actions. And I was thinking there's a Psalm 55 is an interesting okay, go ahead. Uh, thing on that because it's talking, David's complaining against the people who are speaking against him. Okay. And David says, uh, God will hear my voice and he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. So it's the same kind of a okay. battle motif. And these other guys have put forth their hands against those who are at peace with him, meaning David. They have violated his covenant. Their speech is smoother than butter, but their heart was at war. Their words were softer than oil. They were drawn swords. So even though externally they had good words, and you could even say externally they had a kind of a message that sounded Christian, they were deceitful because their heart was different. And that's what's kind of coming up in the next verse where, where you just look at, are they looking for money? If they're not looking for money, that's a very good sign, at least that that's one big... Yeah, it doesn't prove that they're true. But it's a big... Right. There are people that will give you a false message for free. I'm not saying everybody wants to get paid. I mean, there are people that will give up every penny they have to go live in a monastery and listen to a false gospel and perpetrate a false gospel while they're there. There's Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, because Paul talks about that. Remember... The uh, little thing about do uh, they, they're think, wondering whether he loves them. But look at First Corinthians 13. Often preached to weddings. By the way, we had a nice wedding here yesterday, and <laughs> wasn't that wonderful? Paul and Becky, Becky, right? Paul and Becky got marvelously married. <laughs> it was it was wonderful. 
Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, and become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There may be a little barb going on there about the tongue speaking in Corinth. That was their badge of spirituality. Remember? And Paul had to correct them about how they did that and put some restrictions on it. First Corinthians 14. If I have the gift of prophecy, another thing that they claimed they had, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Here's a verse I was thinking about. Now, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So people are willing to do extraordinary self-sacrificing things in the name of false religion. Agape love, where does it come from? Yeah, from God, and so it's a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying that if you don't have agape love, which is the true sign that the Holy Spirit's at work, uh, as far as an internal sign, there's a, uh, it's nothing, it's worthless. So people are willing to do this. I'm preaching this morning on a section about the high cost of discipleship where it says, that you cannot, let's just take one verse that I'm going to preach on. You cannot be my disciple unless you, what is it, sell? You can't be bound by your possessions. Luke 14.33, I know what verse it is. Luke 14.33. So, here it is. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. And I don't want to give away my sermon, but the word give up means says, say goodbye to. Okay, <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> Now, and I'll explain what that means in the sermon, but I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. I may not have time to do that upstairs. In the early church, there were people that took these things so literally and they misinterpreted them to be teaching sort of an elitist Christianity. And so that you could have two different kinds of Christians. You'd have the ordinary Christians who had jobs and possessions, and family, and so on. And then you had the elite, extraordinary Christians who would actually, uh, there was almost a cult of martyrdom. They were seeking to be martyred. And they thought if you didn't get martyred, they took a verse in Hebrews very literally, hyper-literally, where it says that these will have a better resurrection. So they thought if you, if you die as a martyr, you'll have a, some special kind of resurrection that will make you better off than anybody else. And so they were literally not being forced to be martyred. They were trying to be martyred, to give up their life. Um, and there's even reports of them grabbing the docile lion, saying, come on, what's wrong with you, when they were thrown to the lion. Okay. Now, Jesus is not saying that we have to, that every Christian has to purposely impoverish himself and as, as MacArthur says, become a beggar. No, it's not saying that. You don't have to do that. But what you have to do is to see that the gospel and, this, and, and having a discipleship relationship with Jesus is more important than everything else in life. And it could very well be that you'll lose these things. But not because you forcibly tried to or you joined a monastery or you... Or you um, Consider yourself a better Christian. But, but, so we can't, we could, we could say this. Somebody 
could have a false gospel and still not be motivated by money. It's possible. It's happened. But if a person absolutely has to have the money or they won't share their message with you, then you know it's false gospel. Because any preacher of the true gospel will be willing to preach the gospel to anybody, whoever they are, whether they have money or not. Does that make sense? All right. Now, let's go to verse 13. For such men are false apostles. Here, Paul probably coined a word. It's pseudapostoloi, combining the word pseudo with the word apostle and making it one word. False apostles, deceitful workers. Okay, so there, see, there are things that Paul is. Paul's a worker. Paul's an apostle. Paul's an apostle of Christ, but they're, they're, they're false ones. First of all, it says they're deceitful. Uh, it's from a, uh, Dalios, from Dalos, Dalos, which means bait. So the deceitful worker is, is the one who's putting out bait. Um, Lenski says the connotation is deception that kills. They put bait out to catch their victims. Now, what sort of bait do false teachers put out? Well, I'm going to open it up for, this, for discussion. So a lot of you have been <laughs> baited. <laughs> okay. Okay. So one kind of bait is health and prosperity. What's another kind of bait? Yeah, elite status. Another kind of bait is elite status. I took that bait when I was a young man. I took the bait. And I joined a group where we did give away all of our possessions. And we did live with no income. And we did put ourselves under a rigorous system where you had to obey the shepherds above you and all things, including ordinary details of life. And what was the bait? Why would somebody want that? What do you get out of it? I got the idea that I was in the kingdom of God, unlike all the ordinary Christians that were sniveling around in, in uh, regular churches. Yeah, I was in like the kingdom living. Right. I, I think there's another one that's maybe a little more insidious, but I think the bait is to be part of something bigger than you. Oh, yeah. Because I was down at Oral Roberts University... And they were building the City of Faith 60 stories high. And he invited the people to come in and to be a part of it. Just give me your money and you can be a part of this too. And you see on most, I would say, the, the heretical websites, you have a little partner button where you can click to give money to be a partner to support what's going on. So there's a certain kind of bait to be part of my ministry, give me money, and I will be collective. You'll collectively share in the glory that's yeah. going on. Um, that's a good point, Keith. Now, let me tell you that when I was researching the Purpose Driven Movement, yeah, you can find it in the Purpose Driven Church. Rick Warren actually s- says that and, and says it's a good thing. All right? He says people, people want to commit themselves to something big. Right? Okay? And so you create something big, 
And then ask for a big commitment. Okay? So we have something big. Peace plan. Okay? We want a big commitment. And you have to take oaths to, to tithe, to serve, you know, 101, 201, 301, 401. They're, they're all oaths that you take. And people are willing to do it because they feel like I'm a part of this big thing that's going to wipe out AIDS or something. And they'll commit to it. Um, because they gain, what do they gain? Some sort of status of belonging to something important. Yes. How about now I can do anything and everything I want because, I, uh, because Christ has forgiven me? Oh, so like the uh, um, libertine, your antinomian gospel. Yeah. Okay, so there's always bait. Gretchen, there's always some kind of bait. I, I don't want to go on my own judgment in this, but when you talk about insidious, I think that's something that's hard to figure out and that confuses me. And before I came here, I went to this church where I think they're still building money for a Dominion Hall, and it could be like you were saying, Keith, about something that's bigger than me, but still it's filling social ministries. So I guess... I feel kind of confused. So when I got confused, a, a friend advised me to come here for the expository. And I don't get confused if I just worry about my walk with the Lord. <laughs> Gretchen, God bless you. <laughs> I, 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 you know, that's a very good, simple advice that we should all listen to. Now, what, what, does the, is there any bait that goes along with the true gospel? No, what are we actually offering people when we offer them the gospel? Forgiveness of sins. <laughs> yeah, forgiveness of sins is the thing that's offered, along with persecution and so on. But the forgiveness of sins is what's offered in the true gospel. All right, yes, uh, Casey. When you were talking about um, the elite status of a Christian and so selling your possessions and, and you joined the little commune and you thought that you would gain some favor from God and that, I think something similar, I teach at a Christian college and um, I, sometimes I see a division and this isn't put on by the, administ- uh, the administrators, but sometimes there's this division of the students who go into ministry, those Christian students, and then the students that choose to be an English major, history major, business or something. And so you've got this, this uh, polarization. And it, the um, more spiritual Christians, I'll put that in quotation marks, are going to be the missionaries and the pastors. And then there's the rest of us. And so um, <laughs> that, I think, is something similar to that elitism in Christianity. So the, the really great, strong Christians go into full-time ministry. And that, of course, is False. I don't think that's that's right. Yeah, I don't. You know, all of this. Uh, thank you, Casey. It makes sense. Um, as we've been studying our way through Luke and reading some of the materials, and some of you have been reading along with some of the study materials that I use, especially this Kenneth Bailey. Um, you realize that in in life, status gets to mean a lot. Okay, the world kind of operates on a status basis. Who has status vis-a-vis whom else? And you see that in the Gospels where Jesus is seeing people picking out uh, where they're going to sit at the table. 
and they're trying to get a higher status than the other person. Um, and you see these, all these parables warning about that, not trying to find status. And I think what we have to ask the Lord to do is to sanctify our motives and our hearts, okay? So that we never look at other Christians as having lesser status for any reason, okay? Because the only status that means anything is that you've been adopted into God's family, right? People have different roles, but that doesn't mean they have different status. It's just different roles, okay? And we admire people that do their role very well, especially if it's public. I I admire John MacArthur. I admit it. I admire what he does. I I see him as as a role model type of person. But he doesn't look at himself as... Um, let me, Jesse, can I tell a story about how you met John MacArthur? All right? but let me just tell you what makes this guy tick, and it's what makes me admire him. Uh, Jesse was working for Jan Markell at the time, and she was out at KKMS to do something for Jan, right? Okay, well, John MacArthur was in town to speak at this thing that some of you went to a few years ago. Okay? Well, here's all of the dignitaries all dressed up, and we're going to meet John MacArthur. You know, the station manager and everybody that was important to KKMS all waiting to meet John MacArthur. Chessie was just sitting over in a corner, right? Just sitting in the corner minding her own business. And so John MacArthur comes in, sees all these fancy people, and then sees this lady sitting in the corner. So he goes over to the lady sitting in the corner, Jessica, and, she's, and he says, what did he say to you? Yeah, yeah, who are you and why are you sitting in the corner, right? <laughs> and, and, and then he started telling her, what, didn't he tell you a story about how he met his wife? Yeah, he was, he was talking about how he met his wife and they, um, if I remember right, it had something to do with a Bible study. And, but it was so humble of him because here was all these people, all, all the suits, all waiting to meet him. And I just decided to stay out of the way. And he came in and looked around and he we had a the... really nice chat. But he was very, <laughs> he was interested in what I had to say is, is kind of well, how he came across. So wow. Okay, so that, really nice. that says something that the person gravitates to the one person who apparently has no status. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Well, I can explain to everybody why he is that way, because I've heard him talk about it. If you talk to anybody around him in ministry and stuff like that, they've never met a man that's more inquisitive than John MacArthur in their whole lives. That's what drives him. Well, so anyhow, I think it takes the, the work of grace for us to just start thinking like Christians instead of like worldly people. Okay? And there's a biblical verse for that sort of thing, and it's in 1 Corinthians 12, where it says, if there's any member that seems seems less, what is it, honorable, seemly, upon that member we bestow more abundant seemliness, I think, if I remember the translation. So there would be a, a good thing to gravitate to to just get to know somebody who doesn't think they have any status. The, the ordinary people. That's, that's a, a, a Christian virtue. But it doesn't happen with false teachers. Okay? The thing, uh, the bottom line, whatever the bait is, 
false teachers are trying to get something from you. All right? Whatever it is, they're trying to get it. They need you to get what they need. Whatever it is that drives them. Whether it's money, whether it's status, whether it's power, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life. Whatever it is, they need what you have. The true apostle, Paul, gives of himself so that they could gain what they don't have, which is forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God adopted into the family of God. That's what drives the Apostle Paul. Now, it says they're deceitful. They put out bait. It could also mean crafty, crooked. Paul, ironically, in uh, twelve sixteen says, Well, silly me, I deceived you, which doesn't mean he really did. But they act like he did. And then disguising is an interesting word. And it's metaschematozoi. Uh, the, the main part of the word is schema, which would mean an outward form. With the prefix here, it would be an outward form that changes to make them look like what they really are not. So there are people, these false apostles have an outward form that changes to make them look like what they really aren't. They're putting on an appearance so that they could attract followers. They want to look like apostles, yes. Yeah, the New King James uh, reads, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Transforming, yeah. Putting out the schema is, is meta, the metamorphosis, only meta schema, however you pronounce it. It's a long word. So they're disguising themselves. Now, let's look ahead to 14. We won't go there until next week, but... Notice the same word appears in verse 14, where Paul says it's no surprise that they do this change of schema, schema, because that's what Satan does. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So Satan changes form, outward form, in order to come appearing to be something he's not. So we'll talk about that, but I want to finish this verse here. We've got just like three minutes. So what kind of form are they masquerading as? Well, as apostles of Christ. Meaning, they want people to believe that Christ sent them. Christ sent them. Some of them in our day will actually say that they heard an audible voice or they had a vision. Or Kenneth Hagin, for example, made the claim that he was taken up into heaven where Jesus told him to go preach his prosperity gospel to everybody. Jesus in heaven, Jesus in heaven tells Hagen, I would make every Christian rich if they would just let me. I'm kind of glad that was in there because I was believing the book until I got to that point. <laughs> and that was almost in the last chapter. That was back in 72, 73, 74. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. But the bigger question is, why was I believing that this guy went to heaven and talked to Jesus? Paul says, if an angel from heaven... Uh, preaches a different gospel, let him be a curse. Well, uh, Kenneth Hagin from he- heaven is just as bad as an angel from heaven. <laughs> Probably worse. <laughs> okay, and so what was one? We, uh, uh, that article, this fellow claimed that, that he heard God tell him to start 20, uh, what was it? Tabernacle of David worship, remember that one? 
Yeah, yeah he claims that. Well, I think, though, that part of it, when you say disguising themselves, it's easy to see if I come in and say, give me your wallet, the first time I see you, you're a little bit suspicious. I was at a church once where the, this guy came in, a prophet, a modern-day prophet, and the first message he spoke was a straight-up gospel message. Oh. And when he spoke that, you go, wow, that's, he's, it was wonderful that he came to the podium. And over time then, he steered it back to another thing, but it took time. You wouldn't know the first time that he came in because the message itself was disguised, and it changed over time slowly. And, okay, that probably is the Colossian heresy. Okay, the Colossian heresy is a hard one to identify because the Colossian heresy actually does have the, the gospel. It's what is added to it that's a syncretism, uh, parts and pieces from other religions and other practices that gets added to the gospel is what poisons the, the teaching at, at a church like Colossae. But it's a little harder to identify because they do have the rudimentary ideas about Christ and the cross. It's just what they add to it. So they add to it. We'll start with uh, the passage. I've got a few cross-references to do on this, and then we'll... We'll talk about how Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He does not come with his red pitchfork suit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Have a nice time of fellowship. We'll see you upstairs in a bit.